Hey guys, I'm Abby, and I'm going to be reading the scripture today, and it comes from Ruth 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell, tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one who drew off his sa- the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Mahlon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, thank you for this day and just for the opportunity to come to RUF and um, take a break from the distractions and busyness of uh, life and of schoolwork and just to be able to come and focus on you. Um, I want to pray just for um, all the other campus ministries. Uh, I know we've been praying for them throughout the uh, throughout the semester and just uh, thank you that they give students an opportunity to come and um, get to know and love you more and uh, just uh, be with all of them. And uh, now I just want to ask you to 
open our ears to uh, hear what you have to say um, and be receptive uh, to your word uh, given to us by Sid. Amen. Hello. <laughs> All right, here we go. Round two. Um, are you doing okay? I know this is like a tough week. So we're back. We're filled with turkey. You know, we were slipped sleeping agents over the break, and now we're back to study hard and get back in it. Um, I made the bold choice of wearing a V-neck turquoise sweater as I'm getting ready. I just wanted to look, put that on the table. <laughs> I know you guys really cared. Okay, so break. Is it too late to talk about? We did okay. Went okay. We're back. Feeling good? Eh? Yes. <laughs> All right. Okay. So I'm Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister with Formed University Fellowship, or RUF. It's a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve the campus and exerts... Eh. Exist to serve you all, wherever you are and whoever you are. And we really kind of try to mean that. We want to be welcoming. We want to be a place where anyone from any personal background or any particular scene on campus can come and feel encouraged and feel welcomed and feel like they can be a part of what we're up to. Um, and so that really means even where you are spiritually. Um, we expect that there are people here who are uh, convinced and unconvinced that are, would call themselves a believer or a spiritual skeptic or maybe would feel uncomfortable calling themselves any of the above or all of the above and would sort of want to smudge in between one of those things. And that's totally great. We're glad you're here. We hope you feel welcome too. And uh, again, that's all to say thanks for coming. And again, thanks for the snacks from South Lake Church and uh, for our missionaries to be here as well. It's been awesome to have you guys so, um, and also if you're new, hey, this is a great week. Thanks for coming. <laughs> so anyway, um, this week we're finishing our semester-long study of the books of Judges and Ruth. So we have been looking at a series I've been calling Love in an R-rated World. Love in an R-rated World. So we spent the first half of the semester in the book of Judges, which constantly reminded us on a weekly basis just how R-rated or TV mature our world can be. Yet at the same time, uh, in the book of Judges, we saw God's love on full display. It's caring, it was shocking, and it's sort of he continually over and over again unstuck, stuck people and rescued them from themselves. In the second half of the semester, we've explored the book of Ruth, and we're, we're still discussing love in this sort of realistic world, a, love that, uh, a world that has violence and things that are obscene and shock, uh, like Judges. But also, this is like a different kind of book. Judges is a national, international scale. Ruth is like a small, intimate portrait. And so we've kind of, we're invited by the stories of two widowed women and a forgotten, nearly forgotten farmer to ask, how do like ordinary people live in an already world? How do we do this? How do we at Davidson live out a positive love in the midst of so much negative? Uh, and every week I've kind of listed that out. I'm going to just give you the Cliff Notes version. Just essentially, if you think about it, you look around, there's geopolitical chaos. We have been at war for a very long time in the world. Uh, hot spots galore. Heavy-duty hurricanes. We just got slammed this year uh, in Americas, but also around the world. There's been crazed violence. It started in Charlottesville, and it's moved to Las Vegas, New York City, Southern Springs, Texas, and I'm sure on and on. And then there's the flood of sexual allegations of harassment and assault 
um, that many of which have been confessed, and they remind us, uh, whether it's Miramax or Washington or PBS, it reminds us also with the social campaign of hashtag me too, that we at Davidson are immune from that, and there are people even here, especially in our community, that are wrestling with what it looks like to live uh, in a world that feels untrustworthy. And so um, that's the world we live in. Yet God, in the midst of all of that, gives us these intimate personal histories of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz in order to help us to learn to step into that grittiness with love and purpose. And by doing this, we actually can keep step with We can get swept up by the God who is working all of the angles. He's working every available channel through us and among us and around us. And he's doing it with this holy, uneasily, extravagantly, riskily, and personally loving presence. He's loving us, who we are, for real, already people like you and me. And here we are. So, um... Before we move into the realistic Ruth picture that we're going to look at tonight one last time um, and what love looks like there, would you pray with me and for me um, and for us one more time? Father, thanks for this time. Thanks for the opportunity to to be here, um, to gather with these folks, with these students. And uh, there's probably about 10,000 things on each person's mind. Um, they're, uh, got a, some of them have a stopwatch going whether it's physical or mental. Um, Some of us feel uneasy. Some of us feel safe and secure. This is the one place on campus that feels that way, or maybe it's the least. And I pray that you'd be with us no matter where we are with that. And I pray that you would encourage us no matter where we are with that. And I just pray, Jesus, that you'd show up. We need to hear from you. Um, We're thirsty. We're tired. We're hungry. And we know not how. And I pray that you would meet us where we are. And that you would surprise us by your goodness. You'd surprise us by your willingness to show up. You'd surprise us by your willingness to take us as we are and move us somewhere beautiful. And I pray, Jesus, that you would be high and lifted up in our hearts and that you would become more believable and more beautiful and that we would see that and it would change our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in 2009, uh, Michael Skolnick, I'm going to bite on this microphone, so I'm just going to back it up. Okay. 2009, Michael Skolnick uh, creates the series on, online. It's a, a website that's mostly entertainment-driven called Global Grind. Has anyone heard of that, Global Grind? Um, Michael Skolnick, in 2009, creates a series, and he calls it He Has a Name. And then later, shortly, he adds She Has a Name. And so... On this website, Skolnick began to post articles that described the lives and deaths of people who were too often never memorialized. These were young black and brown teens who were violently killed, but the media outlets and Americans at large did not remember them. We didn't even know their names. And so in the words of Skolnick, these young men and women were statistics. They were numbers. They were barely even mentioned. And so he started to memorialize them online. And it began with, he has a name, Darion Albert. Darion Albert was a 16-year-old boy who was hit over the head with a two-by-four and killed in a schoolyard fight in Chicago. No one had heard about him. Then he has a name, Kevin Miller, a 13-year-old boy hit by a stray bullet walking home from his school in Queens. 
Then she has a name, Iona Jones, about a seven-year-old girl killed while sleeping in her bed with her grandmother in Detroit. Skolnick would oftentimes get these names and these stories from parents. They would call him, and they would be crying on the phone, and they would be telling him they cannot afford a funeral, let alone a headstone to mark the grave where they're putting their child, and they would beg him, can you please just tell the world that my child existed? I just want the world to know that they existed, that they lived 13 or 17 amazing years. And so Michael Skolnick went on to receive hundreds of these desperate pleading phone calls and Global Grind went on to post hundreds and thousands of these stories about the lives of deaths of black teenagers in America. If you take a step back for a minute with me from the story, from that, from that story to the story of Ruth, and if you kind of take a step back from the story of Ruth, you'll notice it's excruciatingly ordinary. It's excruciatingly, I'm gonna try to say it again, excruciatingly ordinary. It's like almost forgettable. Like just big picture. I know it's in the Bible, but go with me for a second here, okay? Naomi, it's just about basically Naomi and her family leaving a place, Bethlehem. Most of the family dies, that happens a fair amount. Two family members return to Bethlehem. Ruth, a daughter-in-law, gathers barley, that happens too. A local gentleman farmer, Boaz, helps his family extended, extended family out, first by grain, then by marriage, and then a baby in a baby carriage, okay? So... Essentially, that's pretty forgettable, except for that awesome toot at the end. Um, but at the climax of the story, are you ready for it? Here's how commentator Dean Ulrich put it. Chapter 4 begins with a strange sandal-removing custom and ends with a list of names, right? So, I mean, who doesn't love, an end, love a love story that ends with a genealogy, right? A 10-item laundry list of names. Isn't that amazing? Like, (laughs) awesome. Okay, so here's my question, though. What if Boaz was doing what Michael Skolnick was trying to do and then so? What if in this story, what if Boaz in history was pulling aside a nearer relative and a quorum of ten witnesses, exchanging sandals and marrying Ruth to memorialize Naomi and Ruth and the loved ones that had died? What if he was remembering Naomi, her family, and her grief-filled suffering? What if he was honoring in that moment the painstaking labor of Ruth's daily love? And what if God, through the narrator of Ruth, was telling us about Naomi and Ruth? She has a name. What if he was trying to say, he has a name, Boaz? What if the genealogy was God's attempt to post notice, to make mention of all the serious and important lives that came before and after Boaz? From the ordinary Perez, who we know next to nothing about, to the extraordinary David, who we know a lot about from the Bible. You see, Boaz's ordinary actions and this overlooked list of ancestors These actions and this name list, they tell us that our actions and our names are important to God. 
That is, God takes our lives utterly seriously. That we can have something to do with what God is up to on this planet. Righting systemic wrongs and extending unmerited kindness. So in a sentence, Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 22, tell us God personally cares about who we are. He cares about our names. And personally honors what we do, our decisions and our actions. So God personally cares about who we are and personally honors what we do. To kind of place and prove this truth about God in Ruth chapter 4 in the storyline, we're going to look at the ways that God is so intentionally personal in two chunks of verses. Okay? They pretty much split the, split the passage in half. First, verses 1 through 12, we see how God works meticulously in overlooked details. We're going to look at how God works meticulously in overlooked details. Second, in verses 13 through 22, we're going to see how God vulnerably appreciates overlooked people. You can see those, by the way, on your handout as usual. Um, so I won't repeat those again. And we're going to begin with the beginning and we're going to look at verses 1 through 12 and God's meticulous attention to our details. So if you're anything like me, especially on the first reading, especially out loud, you're going to tend to overlook the heart of chapter 4's drama. Verses 1 through 10. Okay? Because the events described there seem so tedious. Can we just have a moment here? We talk about this. These 10 verses are a play-by-play description of an ancient legal procedure. This is the climax of the book. Boaz is doing as he promised in chapter 3. This is what redeeming Ruth and Naomi looks like. But redemption, this like religiously loaded word that we're going to unpack over the course of, this, of our time together, redemption pictured here looks frustratingly small and very inside of the lines, doesn't it? I mean, even for the pre-law concentrators among us, this still feels small and inside the lines, doesn't it? Nobody. Nobody in the pre-law. Gosh, you guys, you're killing me. This is awesome. Okay, so, um, you know, if, you, if, you need, if we need to, like, bow our heads and close our eyes and raise our hands if we're pre-law, we can do that. Um, I won't make you do that, of course. So, look. We want redemption to look like the movies. Do you get this? We want, we want this scene, we want like an epic continent-crushing action of like Justice League, right? Or we want redemption to look like Nicholas Sparks flying heat in the notebook, okay? Instead, redemption in Ruth, Ruth 4 is about buying a field and marrying a widow. Okay. So we read, Boaz boldly moves into action by a judicial meeting, according to ancient customs, <laughs> okay? He gathers the nearer relative, <gasps> responsible to the, the family purchasing. He gives him the first offer. The 10 elders sit on the city gate benches to serve as witnesses and judges. <gasps> the next of kin, humorously called the Poloni Almoni in Hebrew, it's a great little... <laughs> rhyme scheme. Mr. So-and-so literally. It means Mr. So-and-so. That's his name they give him. The narrator's given poking some fun. That guy very logically wants the land and refuses another wife and a potential heir uh, to his land that he would have to chop up and give them more people and he had to provide for more people. He especially doesn't want a wife that, that uh, Boaz calls the Moabite two different times 
and who is a Moabite, which is, a, is from Israel's incestuous cousin and enemy. An enemy, by the way, whose men were banned from entering God's assembly in Israel up to 10 generations, just to give you a heads up. So it's pretty negative connotations. And so Boaz officially, judicially, gets Naomi's parcel of land from her now-deceased Elimelech. He gets the hand of Ruth from her now-deceased husband Malon. And Boaz seals the deal with a stirring speech. That's like basically a word-for-word expansion of what just happened. And a triumphant exchange of footwear. Okay? A sandal that represented a triangle of land on offer, which is basically like a portable real estate title in a pre-printing age life. Okay? Pre-printing press age, I should say. And while elders and bystanders are cheering, they're blessing Buzz's worthiness, they're praying for Ruth's fertility, we're left wondering, this is what I am wondering, is, is that guy going to get his sandal back? <laughs> right? <laughs> is he expected, is Boaz expected to put on the sandal and wear some guy's soiled, ill-fitting sandal around? <laughs> How long? <laughs> is that really going to happen? Is this redemption? <laughs> Time out? Is this redemption? It's a word used 12 times in just three verses. So while most of us have never formally exchanged sandals, I don't know why I had to say most of us. Has anyone <laughs> formally exchanged sandals? <laughs> okay, maybe not. Yeah, you know, if you're not pre-law, you're not done that either. Okay, so we do sometimes have the same question right in the middle of trying to do good. Don't we have that question of like, is this redemption? Think about it. We're at the community garden a few Saturdays in. Not the first one. Okay, we're trying to do good, and we're, we're sitting down with a kid at Ada Jenkins, spelling the same exact word that we spelled last week with less success. Okay, or we're studying the, a chapter worth of terms in the basement of the library, or we're sitting through yet another Patterson Court Council meeting, or just say hypothetically, you're doing Christian ministry and you have to do unglamorous things like emailing back someone who emailed you back and then starring it because you know, just in case. <laughs> we know that these things are often tedious, but they're so important. But why and how are they important? How is our daily ordinary things important? For Boaz, it helps to see that he's exchanging words and footwear because Ruth has asked him to do it. In the middle of the night, in a man-only zone, Ruth ripped off his blanket to wake him up and asked him to go and take care of her and Naomi. But instead of getting offended, instead of getting defensive, instead of giving a condition or a price, he doesn't just click the maybe tab, okay? Boaz is at the city gate in an impromptu court of law for Ruth and Naomi's sake. I love the way that Carolyn James, a commentator, puts it. Boaz is up the next morning before the crack of dawn, shredding his to-do lists, notifying his assistant to cancel all engagements for the day. A busy man with a, packed full, uh, with a schedule packed full with time-sensitive end-of-season projects is dropping everything and heading into town on a mission that Ruth and her mother-in-law cooked up in the middle of the night two women who also happen to be the least significant members of Bethlehem society. And so we begin to see that the frustration we feel often 
from time insensitive interruptions in our lives. Okay? At the end of season, for instance, oh, just say finals. Okay? Just for the sake of argument. Okay? But we see these times, we see the frustration we feel, these time insensitive interruptions. But also, like with Boaz, God chooses to work in these very moments through us, through us dropping something to serve someone else. And that can literally change someone's life. Just like Boaz dropping something changed Ruth and Naomi's life forever. Okay? We see this life change in what Boaz is actually accomplishing for Naomi and Ruth. He is pledging in public before a court of law to take care of all of Naomi and Ruth's life and death needs. So let me just put this in economic, layman economic terms, cost-benefit analysis terms. Okay, ready? This is a lose-lose. Okay, lose-lose for Boaz. Okay? He is paying for the privilege of paying for Ruth and Naomi for the rest of their lives. In debts. He's paying for the privilege of paying for them. Okay? Mr. So-and-so, the closer relative, the actual man responsible for Ruth and Naomi, gets this. He gets this intuitively. And although he certainly can financially afford it, he jumps at the whole offer of land. He goes, actually, I can't. (laughs) And so, in the words of Cynthia Ozick, he thinks of what he has, not of what he might do. He thinks of what he has and not of what he might do. I love that Boaz does the opposite. He thinks primarily of what he might do, not of what he has. Okay? He gladly, lovingly takes on a burden because he sees a burden, he sees an inconvenience as an adventure. Have you heard that G.K. Chesterton quote? Right? An inconvenience is an adventure wrongly seen. Okay? An adventure is an inconvenience rightly seen. Boaz sees giving, not getting, as the way to make other people thrive, to make a system better. Okay? This self-sacrifice, this costly strategy to change people and to change institutions for the better is what Malcolm Gladwell calls generous orthodoxy. There's an orthodox respect for the person or the system that we want to change, paired with a generous willingness to give up what we have to see that change occur. Okay, do you follow that? So what's going on? So Boaz goes from good to great by showing us what actual leadership in the real world is. It's sometimes tedious, oftentimes frustrating work that looks like four things, just in summary. Looks like small and inside the system, okay? It takes interruptions seriously. It thinks of an adventure of what I might do with what I have, okay? And it usually makes me uncomfortable so that others might be more comfortable. That's actually leadership. I know there's a whole institution dedicated to this at Davidson College, but four easy principles that are counterintuitive, small and inside the system, taking interruptions seriously, thinking of the adventure of what I can give with what I have, and what makes me uncomfortable to make other people comfortable as leadership. Okay? In a few years, almost all of you in this room okay, will be in a position more like Boaz and less like Naomi and Ruth. Do you realize that? So you will have a lifelong opportunity, a life of opportunities to affect change for other people that way. 
But unless we see ourselves spiritually as needy as Ruth and Naomi, we will never have the patience with all the procedures. We will never have the patience with the interruptions. We will never have the willingness to sacrifice. Because we've got to see that there's a greater Boaz, Jesus, who is doing for us all the more what Boaz did for Ruth and Naomi, right? Jesus has led us by giving himself away for us. Historically, Jesus, if you think about his life, he was on the smallest of stages. And he was killed by an unjust, impromptu court. Jesus' whole ministry was a series of interruptions that resulted in healings. Okay? And finally, he died like a common criminal on a cross of suffocation, abandoned by his God and Father. That's just not uncomfortable. That's not just uncomfortable. And that's not just tedious. That first Good Friday was cosmically frustrating. Okay? Until the hope of Easter Sunday came. And therein, Jesus' resurrection proves that death and evil, the things that we're fighting against, are mere scaffolding for life and good. Jesus' resurrection proved the necessity of his death, just like the life and the good at the end of Jesus' resurrection proved that the death and the evil was scaffolding to build that up. Okay, has everyone tracking with that? Okay. But death and evil don't often feel that way where we stand. It doesn't feel like it's scaffolding, okay? And sometimes our work feels frustrating, especially this time of year, maybe a little tedious this time of year, because God feels so absent. This is why the end of Ruth, chapter 4, in these verses 13 through 22, it's such a simultaneous comfort. These verses are such a simultaneous comfort and challenge to us, right? Okay. Here we see God intentionally, vulnerably appreciating overlooked people. Okay. This is our second point for those still following the outline. It's two points. I feel like it's pretty easy today. Okay. So verses 13 through 16 insist that God vulnerably honors his people. Okay. So verse 13 tells us that Boaz and Ruth got married, they had sex, and the Lord gave her conception. That is, in the most human and mysterious of things, sex in the beginning of life, God is there, present, with a good gift, a present. God is present with a present, okay? It's pretty memorable, okay? And that is this really interesting description because we don't see God's direct intervention described by the narrative of Ruth, but one other time. At the very beginning of Ruth, and verse 6 of chapter 1, okay? And so that big gap of time from the beginning to the end of that description of God's direct intervention, that underlines the fact that God has been at work throughout the book. Does that make sense? Okay. So just look at the way verses 14 through 16 joyfully acknowledge the fact of God at work. The the book of Ruth, which began with grief and death and emptiness and bitterness, now ends with bursts of celebration, life fullness and sweetness all thanks to God okay God moves Naomi from grieving the dead calling herself bitter and empty to bouncing a baby boy on her knee and serenaded with sweet blessings okay God takes Ruth from grieving a dead husband and a lack of children being all but invisible to to Naomi and the rest of the women in the town of Bethlehem and she gets pregnant and she's showered with a public shut down the town square over the top ancient near eastern praise song okay you have no idea how big this is okay your daughter-in-law is more to you than seven sons and that society 
That was like they closed the entire avenue and they threw a block party for a week, okay? That's a big deal. But this eventually, this eventual happily ever after, brought to you by God, can be so hard to believe in, can't it? Like, this is like so good, it feels like it can't be true. Against our cynicism that overlooks God's ability to do this, Sinclair Ferguson, a theologian, writes this. We must never limit the purposes of God as though he were doing only one thing at a time and only one person in one place at a time, here and now in me. God is intimately aware of us and deeply concerned for our welfare, but his purposes, which include me, do not center on me. Okay? As though what he's doing in me could be isolated from everything else he's doing. No, God's purposes crisscross, they zigzag, they cross-fertilize. He is always simultaneously and contemporaneously doing several things in several lives at once. Okay? In other words, all he, that's a beautiful, eloquent way of saying, God can actually pull off what happened in the book of Ruth. Okay? That's possible. And because his agency and his power are not limited to one finite human being, me. Okay? So look, I just, for a thought experiment, go with here with me. If God is actually God, I know. Okay? If God is actually God, he is by definition not even limited to my finite human understanding of his ability to work in my life. Like, I can't even conceive of what that looks like. I can only conceive of what I look like and how I act. And he's God. Okay? He can work in my life and other people's lives that much more for the sake of argument. And so if God is able, if you're willing to go there with me, is he willing to do this kind of fairy tale level good? Is he willing to do that? Sure, we can't understand the story until we've heard the whole of it. But how do we know that the story of our lives, the story of this world ends well? How do we know that? Against our despair, that overlooks God's goodness. C.S. Lewis, I love this, wrote on the inside cover of another person's theology book. They found this in his library in Wheaton, okay? He wrote this. It's not an abstraction called humanity that is to be saved. It is you yourself, yourself, not another. It's your soul, and in some sense not fully understood, even your body, that was made for the high and the holy place, and that you are every fold and crease and nook and cranny of your individuality destined from all eternity to fit God as a glove fits a hand. And that intimate particularity, which you can hardly grasp yourself, much less communicate to your fellow creatures, is no mystery to him. He made those ins and those outs that he might fill them. He gave you just so curious a life because the key designed to unlock the door of all the myriad doors inside of him. In other words, again, complicated, beautiful. God wants to pull off what happened in the book of Ruth in our lives too. Okay? Because he values you as you are. Okay? He appreciates the whole of you in Christ. Okay? God is not interested in a happily ever after ending, though, that stops with starting a family. That's so important. He's not interested in a happily ever after life that stops with starting a family. What Catherine Sackenfield calls the husband, wife, two children, one dog, one cat version of happily ever after. Okay? 
No, God made us, in the words of C.S. Lewis, for the holy and high place. Okay? And this is why the book of Ruth does not end with the baby Obed in verse 6, 16, right? Bouncing on the knee of, of Naomi. Rather, the book ends with a list of names that end with the name David. The point is that Ruth is not about family values primarily, nor is it about a woman refusing a man's world. While family and patriarchy are clearly the setting of Ruth, the setting does not dictate the purpose. The purpose of Ruth is to point to Jesus. And the way that Ruth points to Jesus, the rescuer of the world, the writer of wrongs, the extender and extension of unmerited kindness. Ruth points to Jesus by telling the story of a few days in the life of Jesus' ancestors. Why? To convince us there's no such thing as an ordinary person or an obscure place to the Lord our God. There's no such thing as an ordinary person or an obscure place to the Lord of God. God intimately cares about every scrap of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz's lives. And he cares about all the times and all the places of every person listed and not listed in verses 17 through 22. And in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, God proves his attention to our details by wrapping up his existence the existence of his son, God incarnate, God become man. He takes that, he wraps it up in the existence of people like us. Do you get that? That's crazy. In the Y chromosomes of Perez and Boaz and, and David. Crazy. You see, God moved his most precious cargo through famines and family lines. He wrapped the antidote to all of the world's problems in a series of fragile embryos, in a series of seemingly forgettable lives and deaths. Look, if Ruth weren't on her hands and knees in the right field at the right time, she would have never met Boaz. If Boaz found only nine elders at the city gate, nine, that's not a quorum, okay? Or if baby Obed, slipped from Naomi's lap. (laughs) There would be no Jesus. There would be no Jesus. There would be no rescue. There would be no justice. There would be no unconditional love in this world. As hard as it is for our cynicism to believe that God is able to work through so many lives, as hard as it is for us to believe in our self-despair that God is good enough to love us whole, It may be the hardest of all to believe that the God of the universe would choose to bind himself and all of his plans to us. God invested his very best in men and women who are mouth breathers. Okay? Men and women who sometimes use curse words. Sometimes trip over things in the dark. Sometimes say things they don't mean and mean things that they say that are mean. People who laugh themselves silly late at night because they're tired. People who are just like us. People who are us. You know what? God has a name. Jesus. Or Yeshua. Or Josh. From a few blocks over. 
But I'm going to try to put this, I'm going to put the blunt force of God's sold out love for us in one final way. Okay, it's a story. Some of you may have heard it. I don't know if many of you have. Okay, when I was a kid, my mom would take me shopping with her to these department stores. We would go to Lazarus Department Store in Columbus, Ohio together, and she used to take the longest time shopping ever. Okay, and so I used to wander off myself somewhere, anywhere in the store, and then my mom would shout. When she got bored, she got done with her shoe shopping, whatever it is, she would shout my name. Sid. And she would turn it into three incredibly long syllables, a nickname that is so embarrassing I can never tell you. (laughs) And she would sing it at the top of her lungs, over the sales racks, over the mannequins, over the shoes. I remember diving to disappear into the clothes rack (laughs) when I heard that love song over the man-made PA system. (laughs) Because I remember feeling so embarrassed Right? Can you imagine? So embarrassed by her love, but also, if I'm honest, so embarrassed for her love. She really did love me. She really did miss me. And my guess is this feeling about that love is a lot like how we feel if we understand the picture of Ruth 4 about God's love. We're just not willing to go there. God in all of his excellence, all of his importance, all of his worth, stoops low to make much of me. God puts his power and his goodness on the line by taking a name and knowing mine down to the very naming. God sings embarrassingly loud over me. He is belting out your childhood nickname at the top of his lungs, and it's echoing over all of the furnishings over the entirety of the heavens and the earth, all because God loves us. God of the universe, the God who owns every square inch of everything, loves actually being around you and misses you and wants to be with you. That is sold out. That is crazy. That is what Ruth is all about. That is what I want. Help my unbelief. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm too astounded by what you do, and, and I'm astounded that I'm not astounded. <laughs> I, I just, it's so hard to wrap my head around that you care, that you're that big and you're that holy, and that I'm as messed up as I am, and yet you care. I'm so many people in this room are in so many different places with that truth. And I pray that you would, would help them to see that your son Jesus makes that possible. And I pray that you would help us all to rest in him. And I pray that you'd help us to wherever we are with that. And I pray that you would help us um, to move us there. And help us to, to trust that you are that kind of God. And that that kind of love isn't just fairy tales. It's true life. It's a life of lists of names. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.